0: Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale Up yon Macool cool, cool dear draw the sorrows drawn your wail From giants right down to fairies of the drooping and solitary And most who are sometimes scary Anything goes by the fireside yeah. They made her a grave, too cold and damp For a soul so warm and true. And she's gone to the lake of the dismal swamp, Where all night long by a firefly lamp She paddles her white canoe. And her firefly lamp I soon shall see, And her paddle I soon shall hear. Long and loving our life shall be, And I'll hide the maid in a cypress tree When the footstep of death is near. Away to the dismal swamp he speeds, his path was rugged and sore. Through wrangled juniper, beds of reeds, through many a fen where the serpent feeds and man never trod before. And when on the earth he sunk to sleep, if slumber his eyelids knew, he lay where the deadly vine doth weep, its venomous tear and nightly steep, the flesh with blistering dew. And near him the she-wolf stirred the brake, and the copper snake breathed in his ear, till he startling cried from his dream awake, Oh, when shall I see the dusky lake and the white canoe of my dear? He saw the lake, and a meteor bright, quick over its surface, played. Welcome, he said, my dear one's light, and the dim shore echoed for many a night the name of the death-cold maid." Till he hollowed a boat of the birchen bark which carried him off from shore far far he followed the meteor spark the wind was high and the clouds were dark and the boat returned no more but oft from the indian hunters camp this lover and maid so true are seen at the hour of midnight damp to cross the lake by a firefly lamp and paddle their white Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore mythology, retell it, have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, culture, and history of storytelling. My name is Kevin Siolahan, and I am your Fireside your host and your fireside bard. Wow, I actually managed to make a mistake in that after saying it nearly a hundred times. Welcome to episode ninety-six of Fireside. This is Fireside of Horror Part 2. This is the second episode of the Fireside of Horrors following last year's episode as well. It is a spooky, spooky time, folks. It is for spooky 5 Me and for very, very real reasons outside of Halloween, which includes at the time of this recording it has just been announced that ireland is going back into level 5 of our pandemic control which is essentially back to what it was at the outbreak back in march or the certainly the the, the first lockdown schools are going to remain open and they're going to try and keep as many businesses but for most of us it means back into our caves and it's a it's a time of immense uncertainty and immense anxiety for so, so many of us. And it's now more a time we can't go to Halloween parties, kids can't trick or treat, but we can still watch movies and read books and listen to podcasts and celebrate all things gothic and horror, to take us out of the horror and the gothic nature of the real world. And I hope that Fireside of Horror can be even a moment of relief for you to get outside of our own heads and to just escape to a world of gothic fantasy and like we did last year, The Fireside of Horror is going to take a slightly different approach in that instead of adapting a story from folklore or mythology, I'm going to explore some of the weird and wonderful inspirations in poetry and verse and literature and song to do with Halloween. And our first piece was what opened the episode there, which was The Ballad of the Lake of the Dismal Swamp, which is just a wonderful, wonderful title. That is by the Irish poet Thomas More, who was uh, most known as a songwriter, as a lyrics writer. He wrote the, The Minstrel Boy and The Last Rose of Summer, um, he was from Dublin, but he is very deeply associated with Wicklow, with my home, because of um, a song called, uh, or it was a song or a poem, I think it was a song, uh, called The Meeting of the Waters, which is a place in County Wicklow, just outside Rathdrum, where my father is from. And there is a statue dedicated to Thomas More. And so when I was researching... Samhain poetry or Halloween poetry, particularly Irish Halloween poetry, as there's a strong case that the Irish invented Halloween or originated Samhain, certainly the the Celtic feast that the Christian church then appropriated into All Hallows' Eve and then into Halloween. And this was the best piece that I found when looking up researching Halloween poetry in Halloween Irish poetry. It is based on a true story. So, uh, Thomas Moore was lecturing in Norfolk in Virginia in America and this was a story he had heard. There was a folk legend around Norfolk of a young woman who paddled out into a lake and never returned, is presumed, was presumed drowned. And her husband went mad with the grief and became convinced that that his lover was still alive and returned to the lake and thought that he saw her lover, his lover still paddling her white canoe out there and he paddled out to her and he drowned himself. And so Thomas More reinterpreted this as uh, this this uh, morbid gothic romance, which I adore, and the idea of them being reunited in death afterwards. And I just thought it was a really lovely way to ease us into the eerie, ghostly nature of of Halloween. And I thought it was a fantastic poem and all the more resonant because I wanted to try and keep it as Irish as possible and all around Ireland. Because this is an Irish storytelling podcast, absolutely. And I wanted to learn myself more about some more of the Halloween themed poetry and verse and literature of Ireland. But our main piece, uh, first of all, I just want to give, like, because we kind of jumped right into, but uh big welcome to. Any new and returning listeners, uh, please do follow me on Instagram at Fireside Bard. Contact me at thefiresidebard at gmail.com. Or if you really want to support the podcast, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash fireside. We can join our ever growing list of very loyal and kind benefactors. And I want to give a big shout out to our new Patron for this week Which is Alex Hanley Alex joins Stephen Reno And uh, Anne Louise Rich As this month's Latest Patrons And Your support On the Patreon Has never been more appreciated As it is now We are pl- We are developing I I keep talking about myself though. Like it To be honest It is just all me I try to make it sound like We like Fireside is Is more of an empire But at the moment It is still Just me And um, with the very kind support of Headstuff, of course, uh, who have provided me with incredible guidance as well as the incredible facilities here at the Headstuff Podcast Network Studios. But over at Fireside HQ, we are developing the next phase of the podcast uh, which I'm, I've spoken to the patrons about. Uh, the fire, the the money that has been raised in the Fireside Patreon has not been touched yet because it has been building over the year uh, for a very specific purpose, uh, something that we want to launch because of the pandemic and to see a world past the pandemic. And I will reveal more on the podcast when it starts to take a bit more concrete shape, but I'm talking to my patrons about it at the moment as I want to it's it's right that they should be the first to know as they're the ones literally financing it at the moment so even if you just wanted to buy me a cup of coffee for this month if you just want to subscribe for one month and then stop uh, I'm going to enable I know it is a thing now you can do where you can have a once-off donation to patreon like you would be able to do on a kickstarter or something so I want to try and enable that for those who maybe don't want to subscribe uh every month and kind of forget about it Uh, But it is there, the Patreon is there if you are in a position to do so. But no hard sell on that. I'm going to continue to record the podcast each and every week for you because it means a huge, huge amount that you tune in to listen to it. So the main piece for Fireside of Horror Part 2, those who listened last year will remember that I did a section from Dracula, which is the great Irish Gothic horror novel where Bram Stoker didn't, he didn't invent... Uh, vampires or didn't invent the concept of a vampire but he easily popularized it and cemented it in popular imagination. It is the definitive vampire story and it is an unbelievable book at that. I read it for the first time last year. It's a long dense book that takes a format in that you wouldn't necessarily think in that it's entirely written in letter form so it is the perf- this is the point of view of several of its characters of uh, Jonathan Harker of Van Helsing of uh what is the doctor's name That's was going to annoy me and he's my favorite character of uh Lucy of I have to doctor in Dracula Doctor in Dream. c Sorry, Dr. C-word. I apologise for any people out there who were screaming that into their phones, into their headphones. It's C-word, you idiot. Uh, Dr. C-word. But that was last year. And if you haven't read Dracula, listen to Fireside of Horror, get a little taste of uh, the episode that we read from that. Um, and then if you like it, read the, the book itself. There's a great audiobook of it. Uh, on Audible as part of a collection, a horror collection, including Frankenstein, Dracula, and The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You get the three for the price of one, uh, and all three are really, really good. But speaking of Frankenstein, that's what leads me to the main piece for this episode, which is from Frankenstein. Now, Frankenstein was a novel written by the British writer Mary Shelley, Mary Shelley, who was married to the great poet Percy B. Shelley and a very good friend of the romantic poet Lord Byron. And so the story goes that Mary Shelley and Percy B. Shelley and Lord Byron uh, were, were camping together. They were, they were visiting each other in the countryside. And around the fireside one night, they decided to have a competition as to which one of them could write the best ghost story. So steeped in ideas of folklore and mythology came this novel where the 18-year-old Mary Shelley wrote and created Frankenstein's monster and created the novel of Frankenstein. So while it is a British novel, there is a strange episode in the centre of the book which when I read it last year was... uh, was very surprising because I'd never seen it in any adaptation of it because I think Frankenstein, more than probably any other horror work, has suffered the most change because of its transition to film. You know, Dracula, the character, is pretty much the same as he is in the book whereas very little of what we would associate with Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster is a pretty huge departure from the novel itself. Uh, And this is due to the transition to cinema and... For example, like you think of Frankenstein, you think of a haunted castle on a hill with thunder, you think of a mad scientist with big hair and the electricity, you think of his little assistant Igor, you think of this huge lumbering green monster with like a square head and bolts sticking out of his side. Look, it was all there somewhere, but it's a pretty far removal. In the novel... Victor Frankenstein is quite a young man. He's a young medical student. He's a young Swiss uh, medical student who has always had an interest in natural wonder and trying to recreate natural wonder. And it is following the death of his mother that he decides to try and create life. And he struggles with the idea of the smaller, more... Intricate parts of the human anatomy and as such creates a creature that is eight foot tall. And but he's only about 25. There is no Igor. And even though he creates, he tries to piece together beautiful body parts that he robbed from graves, the monster ends up hideous. And it's not so much that he's green, it's that his skin is see-through and it's barely covering the muscles, and the stitches are visible all over. And I haven't seen it, but apparently Kenneth Branagh's adaptation of the film, with Robert De Niro as the monster, no less, is one of the more faithful adaptations of it. But interestingly, this is where I'm coming around to, in the centre of the novel, there's an episode set in Ireland. Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster go to merry old Ireland and it's a really unusual tale that is not in any film adaptation of it because I should say like the reason the mad scientist and all that where you can see where it was based on but how it became so uh, how it spiraled and snowballed into what we would naturally associate Frankenstein with now uh, came with the transition to cinema and with Boris Karloff as the famous actor who played the original Frankenstein and played him in Loads of, loads of those original movies that's where that idea started came from and then you end up in Mel Brooks territory with Young Frankenstein which is unbelievable incredible film but so I've always really loved this idea of this episode of Fire of Frankenstein in Ireland and I was surprised that I'd never seen it adapt- adapted before because I think it's almost like a one act play in itself it's something I always had rattling around in my mind sense of wanting to do as some kind of piece and so i'd like to read it for you now to take a break from the adaptation and to just read you the passage from the novel so this is from uh, from chapter 21 of frankenstein so frankenstein has created this monster only to find out it is deformed he runs from the monster The monster then begins to start picking off members of Frankenstein's family. He starts... I should say as well, the monster is intelligent. The monster can speak. That's probably one of the bigger differences from the adaptation to film as well. The monster is very articulate, is immensely tortured because he does not want to be alive. And there begins a cat and mouse chase across Europe where Frankenstein's monster is trying to get Frankenstein to build him a mate which Frankenstein refuses to because he doesn't want to create more evil into the world. So Frankenstein chases his creation to the shores of Ireland. And when Frankenstein arrives in Ireland, he is arrested. And he is arrested for the murder of his dear friend, his best friend and confidant, who I think is who the inspiration for Igor would later be, Henry Clerval. So this is Frankenstein in Ireland on Fireside. Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus by Mary Shelley. I was soon taken before a magistrate, a benevolent old man with calm and distinguished demeanors. Nevertheless, he looked at me with a certain gravity, and then, turning to the people who accompanied me, he asked who were the witnesses of the affair. Half a dozen men showed up. The magistrate had pointed one of them, who gave me his testimony. He said he was out fishing the evening before with his son and his brother, Daniel Nugent, but about ten o'clock, after observing that the north wind was getting up, they preferred to return to port. It was a moonless night, extremely dark. Instead of docking on the harbour, they anchored, as usual, in a cove more or less two miles below. He was the first to set off with part of the fishing gear while his companions followed him at some distance. As he walked along the shore, he had struck something with his foot and sprawled out on the ground. His companions had rescued him, and by the light of their lanterns they had realized that he had fallen on the body of a dead man, to all appearance. At first they thought it was the corpse of a drowned man, thrown back to the sea on the shore, but later they noticed that the man's clothes were not wet, and even that the body was not quite yet cold. They immediately transported him to the house of an old woman who lived nearby, and tried in vain to resuscitate him everything seemed to indicate that it was about a young man who must have been around 25 years old. At first glance, he had been strangled, and apart from a black finger mark around his neck, there was no sign of violence on him. The first part of this deposition did not concern me at all, but when the fingerprint was mentioned, I remembered my brother's murder and felt extremely shaken up, My limbs were shaking, a veil covered my eyes, and I had to lean on a chair to hold myself back. The magistrate watched me attentively, and of course, my attitude did not bode well. The fisherman's words were confirmed by his son, but when Daniel Nugent spoke, he categorically stated that just before his companion fell, he had seen a boat where there was only one man a short distance from the shore. And as far as it was possible to judge by the light of the few rare stars, this was the same boat that I had docked in. Then a woman who lived near the beach and had stood on the threshold of her house to watch for the return of the fishermen said that an hour before she was informed of the discovery of the body, she had seen a boat having only one man on board very close to the shore, not far from where the body had been found. The woman to whom the sinners had brought the unfortunate victim confirmed the facts. The body was not cold. They had laid him on a bed and robbed him. Although the young man was dead, Daniel had gone to town to fetch an apothecary. Several other people were asked about my birthing. "'They agreed that as a result of the northerly wind "'which had picked up in the middle of the night, "'it was almost certain that I had drifted for many hours "'and had been forced to come back very close to my starting point. "'In addition, they pointed out "'that I had probably brought the body from another place "'and, probably not knowing the coast, I had reached the port. "'Not knowing how far the city was from where I was, "'I had deposited the corpse. "'After listening to these statements,' Mr. Kirwan wished to lead me into the room where the body had been placed, pending burial. He probably wanted to realize the effect that the spectacle would have on me. The idea had probably occurred to him that when I had shown great excitement as the circumstances of the murder were being described, so I was taken to the inn, escorted to the magistrate and by other people. The strange coincidences of that fateful night could not fail to impress me. However, as I knew very well that I was discussing with the inhabitants of my island at the time the corpse was discovered, I did not worry about the consequences of this affair. I entered the room where the body had been deposited and approached the coffin. How can I describe my reactions on discovering the corpse? I still feel horrified and I cannot think of that dreadful moment without suffering martyrdom. The interrogation, the presence of the magistrate and the witness, everything as in a dream vanished from my mind when I saw the lifeless body of Henry Clerval lying before me. I staggered and, rushing towards him, cried out, My criminal machinations were therefore and also the reason for your existence, my dear Henry. I have already destroyed two human beings. Other victims will still succumb. But you, Clerval, my friend, my benefactor. A man cannot stand such pain for long. In violent convulsions I was led out of the room. The fever struck me. For two months I was between life and death. My delusions, I learned later, were appalling. I accused myself of the murder of William, of Justine, of Clerval. Sometimes I begged those assisting me to destroy the demon that tugged at me. Sometimes, too, I felt the monstrous fingers squeezing my neck and screamed in terror. Fortunately, as I expressed myself in my mother tongue, only Mr. Kirwan understood me. But my posturing and my cries were enough to frighten the other witnesses. Why am I not dead? I, who am the most miserable man on earth... Should I not have disappeared into oblivion and nothingness? Death takes away countless children in whom their parents had placed all their hopes. And how many engaged couples and young lovers, after having known pleasure and drunkenness, are led to the tomb overnight and eaten away by worms? What was I made of to withstand all the trials which, like the wheel of torture, came to torture me? But I was doomed to live. At the end of two months, as if coming out of a dream, I realized that I was in prison, stretched out on a pallet, surrounded by guards, locks, barriers, and all that is in a dungeon. It was one morning, I remember, when I realized my situation. I had forgotten the details of the events I had experienced, and it only seemed to me that a great disaster had befallen me. But as I looked around and saw the barred windows and the smallness of my dungeon, it all came back to me, and I shuddered with grief. The noise woke up an elderly woman who was sitting on a chair next to me. She was a nurse, the wife of one of the jailers. His features expressed all the vices that characterize the race of people. The lines of his face were coarse and rough, like those of people accustomed to seeing my misery without ever being moved by it. The tone of his voice reflected the utter indifference. She spoke to me in English, and her intonation struck me as if I had already heard from her in the depths of my delirium. "'Are you feeling better now?' she asked me. I answered her in the same language, in a weakened voice. "'I think so. "'But if all this is true, "'if this is not all a dream, "'then I regret I am still alive "'and feeling so much pain and so much horror.' "'For that, yes,' replied the old woman, "'if you want to talk about the gentleman you killed, "'I think you should have been better dead "'because I have the impression that we are going to be hard on you. "'But that's none of my business.' I am here to care for you and to help you get well, and I conscientiously fulfill my office. It would be nice if everyone knew the same. I turned away in disgust from this woman who was capable of speaking such inhuman words to me, who had just escaped death. But I still felt weak, unable to think about everything that had happened. All the events of my life seemed to have been dreams. Sometimes I also wondered if it was true, because nothing presented itself to my mind without obvious clarity. As these blurry images became clearer, I became more feverish. Darkness crowded around me. There was no one by my side to speak to me in a soft, loving voice. No hand to help me. The doctor would come and prescribe remedies, which the old woman was preparing for me. But the first showed me indifference, and on the face of the second was reflected only harshness. Who, apart from the executioner who was paid to hang me, could be interested in the fate of an assassin? These were the ideas that crossed my mind. However, I soon learned that Mr. Kirwan had taken the best care of me. He had made sure that my jail was the most suitable in the prison, but it was still very miserable, and that I could be helped by a doctor and a nurse. It is true that he did not come to see me often. Although he was eager to alleviate the sufferings of a human being, he doubtless did not want to witness the torments and lamentable ramblings of an assassin. He therefore came from time to time to see that I was not neglected too much, but his visits were brief and very short. One day, as I was gradually recovering, I was sitting on a chair, my eyes half open. My face as livid as that of a dead man plunged into my own misery, and I said to myself that it was better that I die rather than find a world where everything reminded me of my misfortunes. At the same time, I was planning to declare myself guilty and submit to the tests of the laws, as Justine had done, even though she was innocent. As these thoughts occurred to me, the door to my cell opened, and Mr. Kirwan made his appearance. His face expressed sympathy and compassion. He sat down on a chair next to me and spoke to me in French. "'I'm afraid this place will put you off,' he said. "'Is there anything I can do to you that will improve your lot?' "'Thank you. "'But all that doesn't matter to me. "'I could never again on this earth receive comfort.' I know that the sympathy of a stranger risks being without effect on someone like you, stricken with such a curious disgrace. But I hope that you will be able to leave this place of misery, because I have no doubt that we will succeed in finding a testimony which will exonerate you of this crime. This is the last of my worries. By a strange combination of circumstances, I have become the most miserable of mortals.' Tortured and tortured, as I have been and as I am, can I still fear death? Nothing, in fact, is more dreadful or sadder than everything that has happened recently. As a result of a freak accident, you were dumped on this shore, renowned for its hospitality, and soon arrested with charge of murder. And the first thing we put in front of your eyes is your friend's body, inexplicably killed and somehow placed by some demon in your path. As Mr. Kirwin spoke, despite the disturbance of recalling my suffering, I was greatly surprised to learn that he knew so much about me. I guess he read the astonishment on my features because he hastened to add, After you fell ill, all the papers that were on you were brought to me. I have examined them so that I may uncover any information which might quaint your family with your plight and your condition. I found a few letters and, among others, one from your father. Immediately I wrote to Geneva. Since I sent my letter, two months have passed. But you are still mad and even now you are trembling. You must be free from all emotion. It would be a thousand times more painful to wait. Tell me who died. What another murder I must cry now. Your family is doing well, Mr. Kirwan said kindly, and there is a friend here who has come to visit you. I don't know the reason why this idea came to me, but at that moment I thought it was the murderer who had come to taunt me and make me responsible for Clerval's death in order to push me again to satisfy his satanic desire. I put my hand in front of my eyes and let out a cry of despair. Oh, hunt him! I can't see it, for God's sake! Don't let him in! Mr. Kirwan looked at me confused. He couldn't help but take my exclamation as a presumption of my culpability and said to me in a stern tone, I would have thought, young man, that the presence of your father would have been welcome and now it inspires you a strong repulsion. My father... I cried as though all the muscles in my face relaxed and my confusion subsided. So my father has come. What a wonderful man! But where is he? Why isn't he hurrying? My change of attitude surprised the magistrate and pleased him. No doubt he thought that my exclamation had only been a fleeting return of my delirium. And again he became affable. He got up and left the room with the nurse. A moment later my father entered nothing at that moment could have given me a more complete joy than this arrival I held out my hands to him and cried out so you are safe and sound and Elizabeth and Ernest my father calmed me down and assured me that everyone was fine by broaching subjects that were dear to my heart he then tried to give me courage but soon he realized that a prison was not a haven of happiness what place do you live my son he said, looking sadly at the screened windows and the grim appearance of the cell. You had gone on a trip to find happiness, but fate is hitting you. Poor Clerval. The name of my murdered friend caused me, in the state of despondency in which I found myself, a deep emotion, and I burst into sobbing. Alas, yes, father, I replied. A terrible fatality haunts me, and I must live to accomplish it. If I wasn't, I would have fallen on Henry's coffin by now. We were not allowed to converse any longer, as my precarious state of health required absolute calm. Mr. Kirwan returned and insisted that I not exhaust my strength in too great an effort. But the appearance of my father had resembled to me that of a helping angel, and little by little I recovered my health. As the disease subsided, however, I fell into a dark melancholy that nothing succeeded in dispelling. The image of Clerval haunted me incessantly. Clerval assassinated. On more than one occasion, the extreme agitation to which I was the prey made those around me fear a dangerous relapse. Alas, why were they so keen to preserve a dreadful and miserable existence? It was surely for me to fulfill my destiny, which now is approaching its end. Soon, oh, very soon, death will overcome my torments and deliver me from this crushing burden of suffering that I carry with me. And once justice is executed, I will know rest. Although it was constantly present in my mind, death still seemed far away. For hours and hours I sat motionless, prostrated waiting for a brutal catastrophe which would engulf us, my destroyer and I, in its ruins. The opening of the meeting was approaching. I had already been in prison for three months, and although I was still very weak and still subject to relapse, I was forced to travel a hundred miles to reach the town where the tribunal was sitting. Mr. Kirwan himself took care of calling the witnesses and providing for my defense. I was spared the disgrace of appearing in public as a criminal because the case was not argued before the court which decides on the death penalty. After establishing proof that I was indeed in Orkney when my friend's body was discovered, the grand jury acquitted me. And fifteen days after my transfer, I was therefore released. The fact that I was thus cleared of all suspicion relieved my father. I was going to breathe fresh air again and return to my native land. But I did not share his feelings. The walls of a prison or those of a palace, for me it was all the same. Now my life was poisoned. No matter how bright the sun shone for me, as it did for those who have peace of mind, I saw nothing but thick darkness all around. I could not see any light except that reflected by two horrible eyes. And sometimes it was also Henry's eyes, darkened by death, the dark sockets half hidden by the eyelids and the fringes of the eyelashes. And still sometimes they were the mistress's damp and nebulous eyes as I had first seen them in my room in Ingolstadt. My father tried to rekindle feelings of affection in me, he was talking to me about Geneva, which I was going to see again soon, about Elizabeth and Ernest. But his words made me moan. From time to time, of course, I felt a need for happiness, and I thought half-heartedly of my cousin whom I loved, invaded by the sickness of the country I was burning to see again, the Blue Lake and the Rapid Rhone, which liked it so much during my teenage years. But my general state was torpor, and I didn't care if I was in prison or contemplating magnificent landscapes. My studies were crossed only by fits of anguish and despair. And in those moments I thought only of ending my days, and I would undoubtedly have committed this violent act if I had not been the object of rigorous surveillance. However, I still had a duty to accomplish, and this memory finally got the better of my selfish despair, It was necessary that I return to Geneva as soon as possible to watch over the lives of my family and watch for the arrival of the murderer. If I was lucky, I would find his place of retreat, unless he dared to manifest himself again, in which case I had to, with the infallible neck, kill this monstrous creature that I had endowed with an even more monstrous caricature of my soul.' My father wanted to delay our departure because he feared that I would not endure the fatigue of the journey. I was so wounded, the shadow of a human being. I was without strength, and night and day consumed with fever. However, as I was worried and anxious to leave Ireland, my father saw fit to give in. We took our places aboard a ship leaving for La Le Havre, and with a favourable wind, we left the Irish coast. It was midnight. Stretched out on the deck, I gazed at the stars and listened to the rustle of the waves. I blessed the darkness that hid Ireland from my sight, and my heart thumped with joy that soon I would see Geneva again. The past gave me the impression of having been an odious nightmare. However, the ship where I was, the wind which pushes me far from the shores of Ireland, the seas all around, everything attested that I had not lived a dream and that Clerval, my best friend, had been the victim of the monster I had created. In thought I spoke of my entire life, my serenity when I was with my family in Geneva, the death of my mother, my departure for Ingolstadt. I remembered with trembling the mad enthusiasm that had driven me to create my hideous enemy, and I saw the night when he had been given life. I was unable to continue my thoughts." A thousand sensations oppressed me, and I began to cry bitterly. Since my health had recovered, I had become accustomed to taking a little Laudium every night, because this drug gave me the possibility of regaining the necessary rest to keep me alive. Overwhelmed by the memory of my multiple misfortunes, I drank double the usual dose and soon fell sound asleep. But sleep did not tear me from my thoughts, and an endless array of sordid images crossed my mind. Towards morning, a sort of nightmare seized me. I could feel the monster's hand around my neck, and I couldn't get out of it. Howls and cries echoed in my ears. My father, who was watching over me, realized this and woke me up. The waves were surrounding us. The sky was cloudy. But the demon was not there. I felt a sense of security, the impression that there had been a truce between the present and my irreversible and tragic future. It was a kind of peaceful oblivion, the very one that the human mind on such occasions arouses so easily. Folks, as you all know, Fireside is a proud son of the Headstuff Podcast Network, which is Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts and a loving home for the creative and indeed the curious. There are so many other podcasts I could recommend to you on the network, some of which inspired me to approach Headstuff myself. Here's a taste of one you might enjoy. What is Dublin? We have to explain what Dublin is. The Dublin podcast is an eternally pregnant woman. Um i have mean, been pregnant three times. Yeah, but you've been pregnant since I met you. Right, okay. Hanging out with an neurotic middle-aged toddler mm-hmm. and the way that those two people from very opposing sides of the um world see the see the world around them. Is that it? I is think that that's a good it. explanation of that's it? a very good explanation. Uh, you can listen on Spotify, you can listen on iTunes, you can listen on the Headstuff Podcast Network. We're on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Dublin podcast. your ear earholt. And that is Frankenstein in Ireland on Fireside. It's... I hope you share this as well. It is just so deliciously gothic is really the only phrase for it. I mean, with this novel... Mary Shelley invented the science fiction genre. It is considered the first great science fiction novel from 1818. That's how early we're talking here. But it is, of course, fundamentally a gothic novel. And there's evidence here, and it certainly was when I felt like myself, I was wrenching myself like a wet cloth, that why gothic horror we still read it, why, why this is still such an immensely readable novel that I don't find it dated in any way. And it's because while we know that gothic romance and gothic horror like Wuthering Heights and Dracula as well, while we know that they're melancholy and melodramatic and mellow everything, we relish in that. We want to feel these things from them. And this episode, it still is one of my... I do think it stands alone. Um, The only thing... Yeah, so again, Henry Clerval is Frankenstein's best friend who travels around with him. He kind of takes the place of the Igor character. And Frankenstein's monster, his creation, is haunting Frankenstein for creating him. He, he, is, he feels he has cursed him with life and he refused to even give him a mate. All Frankenstein wants is a friend, his companionship, is the bride of Frankenstein, whom Frankenstein creates and then destroys before he can. And this infuriates the monster even more. And Frankenstein wants to, Frankenstein's monster wants to pick off Frankenstein's love and family one by one. And so he frames him. The creature is is this intelligent and this capable. He frames Frankenstein for the murder of his own best friend. And if that's not deliciously gothic, I don't know what is. And just all this language of why am I alive? That kind of talk is, we still relish in that and we still feel those things. Um, And I think, why I think it's particularly... There, of course, there's elements of this chapter that feels like it could be set anywhere. You know, it's almost like you could miss, except for the end, that it is Ireland. Except that we talk about like sleepy fishing villages, and we have names like Nugent and Kirwan and and such. And and we have this this nurse, you know, kind of cursing him as much as healing him, which is really indicative of the Irish. And Anglo Irish relations were at an all time low. At this point in history, around 1818, we'd had the 1798 Rebellion 20 years previously. And there becomes this thing in British, really British magazines and newspaper, this cartoon uh, that is called the Irish Frankenstein. Uh, It was most famously illustrator, and this will disappoint a lot of people, it certainly disappointed me, John Tenniel, who is the incredible artist of the illustrations for Alice in Wonderland. Any of the images you have of Alice in Wonderland outside of the Disney cartoon, these are by John Tenniel, and just Google any of them, and they're just incredible. They're 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 so messed up and just kind of Again, gothic. It seems like an appropriate word, and they're still slightly eerie and creepy and immensely. Like they burn themselves into your retinas. But regrettably, whether it was commissioned or otherwise, John Tenniel became famous for his cartoons of the Irish Frankenstein, where Irish people were depicted as these eight-foot monsters that were going to come over and uh, and kill British people, and it it perpetrated this myth. In Britain, that the Irish were savages. Um, that there was a, a very common belief in the English gentry that I forget exactly who said it, that that they prayed that they thanked God for sending the English to the Irish, for civilizing these vicious savages. So this is why I find it particularly interesting that Mary Shelley chose. To set a chapter of her novel in Ireland, and that to pardon the pardon upon the the monster that she created by then Frankenstein entering the Frankenstein's monster instantly entering the lexicon to mean any kind of monster, which then was repurposed and used as a derogatory criticism of the Irish of the Irish people. And that's what I think makes it so particularly potent that this chapter exists. You know, it's indicative of, I think it's indicative of what what the attitudes of the Irish were at that time. And it's indicative of what would then, then come after that. And I hope that if you haven't read it, that it might make you read that novel Um Read it over the Halloween break again. It's it's not a Halloween novel, you know. We 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 associate it with Halloween now because we associate Frankenstein with it and dressing up and all. It's just a wonderful, dark, gothic, melancholy drama. It's great, and if you have read it, I hope you enjoyed. Uh, I hope you enjoyed my reading of that that chapter. Moving on. I wanted to talk a little bit before we before we wrapped up. Talk a little bit more about Sawan itself. I wanted to talk to you about a place in Roscommon called Alnagawat. I'm going to pronounce that correct. Alnagawat, yes. Uh, Alnagawat, which was sometimes adapted as the Cave of Cats. This is considered the birthplace of Samhain and it is thought to be the entrance of Hell. So, in Rathcrown. In County Roscommon, which was also known as Crohan Fort, which those of you who listen to the Ulster Cycle on the podcast will remember, is the fort of Queen Maeve of Connacht. So, Rathcroan is still there. Over the summer, uh, myself, myself and my girlfriend went uh, to Rathcroan and we stood on the hill fort of Queen Maeve. It was great. And very nearby, I mean, it's just an open field now, but it was fantastic to stand up on that ring for it and just see the the area of the 360 view all around. But very close by is considered to be the entrance to hell. And this is Alnagawet. And it is a little hole in the ground. It's like a little passage tomb, like there's stones built into it. And you can crawl into it. And this was considered where the birthplace of Halloween was, the first sound. And any reference to Samhain in folklore and mythology usually somehow revolves around this cave, this cave of cats. So, for example, in the Fenian cycle, when Fionn McCool defeats Alain the Burner, which is how he becomes leader of the Fina, it is that Alain the Burner burns down Tara Every sound, it's every Halloween. He comes up for 24 years. He comes out of the Cave of Cats and burns Tara to the ground until he is defeated by by Fionn McCool. And I talked about this in my play Cassowary that I wrote about a folk musician with a fear of birds. There was one sound where an enormous three headed dragon bird creature known as Elaine Trechend. Um, can never pronounce that exactly correct, but he was this three-headed bird creature, almost like the Pokemon Moltres, if you remember the first generation Pokemon. That uh, I always have that image of that of like this bird on fire with three heads. He burst out of of the cave of cats and was surrounded by these other copper-red million minion birds, and supposedly on this Halloween night burned Ireland down, and. It's thought that this might be Elaine Al- the burner, especially with the Elaine Alain connection, but it might be a totally s- separate thing and it was it was only Amergen who was a poet who was able to defeat Elaine Trechend and on the on the cave of cats at the entrance to this gateway into hell, there is a stone. Uh, that has written in Oum in the ancient Irish alphabet, uh, here lies Miach, son of Maeve. And so on this entrance to hell, this gateway to the other world as it was, is a stone that is almost a primary resource that Queen Maeve of Connacht, this mythological figure who has thought that the possibility that she was a goddess, this is like a primary resource that she actually existed, that she was a real person, and I wear it as a necklace around my neck now. This uh, this little stone with the the engravings here lies Miek, son of son of Maeve. So Samhain is uh, is deeply deeply intertwined, of course, with with folklore and mythology, and you will find any any reference to. To Samhain usually revolves around Alnagawas, around this this cave of cats, this entrance to the other world, and yes, we went into it myself and Anna. We climbed into the cave of cats, and it was really spooky in there. It's really cramped, and the best thing about it is it's hard to find. It's you know it's not marked by you know, like touristy signs, you know, there's no, like, tour to it. Well, you can get a tour to it from Rathcrow Village, but you have to walk down this long path and it's, like, through kind of farms and it's still really, really preserved and it's just in a field and you just have to stumble upon it and it's so natural and so as it was for that very reason and it's an immense... It, it, like if you happen to be driving around the Roscommon area or you're driving around Ireland, anyone from outside who, when you finally can come back to Ireland, please do, and please visit the Cave of Cats and visit the birthplace of Halloween. And there's another great tradition of Halloween which the Irish are very much thought to have invented as well, and this is jack-o'-lanterns, is the idea of carving pumpkins. And for those who don't know, it's thought that that came about Pumpkins didn't really grow in Ireland. So what the Celts used to do and what was done for hundreds of years was they would carve turnips. And if you've ever seen a carved turnip, an image of one, it's truly, truly terrifying. And it was thought then that after around the famine, when all of the mass emigration happened uh, into America of the Irish, that this was one of the traditions that they brought over there. And it's once the concept of carving turnips went to America then they discovered that pumpkins were a much better bet, that you could carve into pumpkin. It was large, it was fleshy, it was orange. And this is where the idea of a jack-o'-lantern really took off, because then you could hollow out a pumpkin and you could place a candle inside. <coughs> and longtime listeners of the show might remember the story of the Three Wishes about Bad Bill, who had three encounters with the devil and his minions and kept out tricking, uh, outwitting the devil. And then when he went up to heaven at the end, he was denied entrance to heaven by St. Patrick and was sent down to hell and was denied entrance to hell by the devil for having tricked him so much. And because of this, uh, Bad Bill was cursed to wander the lands of Ireland and he just with a lantern to hold and he became known as Will-o'-the-Wisp and a Will-o'-the-Wisp is a phenomenon that happens in bogs where there will just be a spontaneous burst of flame coming out of the bog somewhere it's really mysterious and really bizarre and a wonderful, wonderful natural phenomenon and their way of explaining this was that this was bad Bill but this is and there's another ver- ver- version of that story where he is known as Jack and it is the same story that he is denied entrance to heaven and to hell and is only given a lantern to walk around with. And he was known as Jack of the Lantern or Jack-o'-lantern. And that is so that is as concrete proof as you'd want of a concept of an idea originating in a country. You know, we wouldn't have this like Jack-o'-lantern feels like a lad you went to school with. But so yes, if you want to, after you listen to this you haven't listened to it at all or maybe you haven't listened to it in a while, check out The Three Wishes because it is indirectly another Halloween tale. But to finish up, because it's been a very long episode but it's a Halloween special, it's Samhain, it's pandemic, it's the world is on fire! Um, And I wanted to give you an extra long one while we could. I want to finish with a song. There's lots of Christmas songs. It's very hard to find Halloween songs I found. Last year I did... uh, a wheel, a wheel, a wall, yeah. um, which is the, the cave the cave of the sorry I'm checking the message uh, the tale of the woman in the woods which I kind of repurposed but uh, I thought it kind of worked but we have uh, I managed to find an actual Halloween song and it turns out that it's it's really well recorded. It's, it's been adapted a lot of times. Sting even did an adaptation of it. Uh, the folk group Peter, Paul and Mary. It's, there's a couple of different names it's known as. It's known as A Souling, uh, The Soul Song, Soul Cake. And it is, I suppose I'll just sing it. And let me know what you think. But here is our Halloween song. The Souling Song. A soul, a soul, a soul cake Please good missus, a soul cake An apple, a pear, a plum or a cherry Any good thing to make us merry One for Peter, two for Paul Three for him that made us all god bless the master of this house and the mistress also and all the little children that round your table grow likewise your men your maidens your cattle and your store and all that dwells within your gates we wish you ten times more a soul a soul a soul cake please good missus a soul cake an apple a pear a plumber a cherry any good thing to make us merry one for peter two for paul three for him that made us all the lanes are very dirty and me shoes are very thin i've got a little pocket that i can put a penny in if you haven't got a penny a hey penny will do. If you haven't got a heypenny, then God bless you. A soul, a soul, a soul cake. Please, good missus, a soul cake. An apple, a pear, a plum, or a cherry. Any good thing to make us merry. One for Peter, two for Paul. Three for him that made us all. And that is the soul song. And this is a, this is a folk song that's as old as they come. It's a traditional round been adapted a huge amount of times. Sometimes it's adapted as a Christmas song but they have loads. They have loads of Christmas songs. This, I think this screams Halloween song and it's it's got that real haunting children's nursery rhyme quality to it that you're going to hear it being echoed in a haunted house. So if you like to check out, there's loads of versions for it on Spotify. But this is going in my collection now. I've collected this Halloween song of The Soulings Song. So that was Fireside of Horror Part 2, an epic mammoth episode as it was. And I hope you all enjoyed it. Um, we had The Lake of the Dismal Swamp by Thomas More. We had the episode of Frankenstein in Ireland by Mary Shelley. And we had The Soul Song. We also talked about Alan Gowat and the Jack-o'-lantern. I think we covered, covered good stuff there. So I want to thank you so much all for listening. Please follow me at Instagram on firesidebard, Bard, thefiresidebard at gmail.com. So please support the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Fireside Podcast. Thank you so much to Alan, Paddy and Connor, everyone here at Head Stuff for their continued support. I'll see you all. You'll hear me all next time where we are doing the story of Fionn McCool in the old man's house. We're returning to Fionn McCool as the part two of our story from last week, which was Thor in the land of Giants, to see how the Irish told that story i'll hear, see you'll hear take that again <laughs> i'll see you all you'll hear me all next time, and remember wherever you are and wherever you go, you can always join me by the fireside This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.